0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So far in this series, focused on the initial phases of the war in Afghanistan, there's been a lot of kinetic engagements, a lot of large fights. But the war is changing certainly by early 2002, but even by late 2001, it's transitioning to more of an insurgency. It's going to get messier and more and more complicated. It's going to put our soldiers on the ground in situations where they're asked to move seamlessly between saving lives and taking them. Today, we have the story of Sergeant First Class Christopher Spear, a Special Forces medic serving with the Army's First Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta and a one-week period of time in July of 2002. Now, this war is transitioning to an insurgency certainly by early 2002, and for good reason. If you're the Taliban or even Al-Qaeda, and you attempted to meet the Northern Alliance and the small number of of Americans that were in country at the start of the war on the open battlefields, the Shamali Plain in northern Afghanistan, you got slaughtered. I mean, American air power once on station just decimated the Taliban ranks. So listen, this is a smart enemy. They're, uh, uh, they're very capable. They adapt on the fly. And one of the things you're going to do is, is shift to a type of warfare where they might have the advantage. I mean, that's the name of the game in any sort of conflict. You don't really want to fight an even fight if you can. And at the beginning, you know, late 2001, the United States most certainly had the upper hand, especially in terms of military capabilities. Not something that would go away by any stretch, but the Taliban are going to move the scales a little bit in their direction when they start to adopt more of an insurgency mindset, which isn't a crazy hard thing to do in Afghanistan. Because remember, the Taliban, unlike Al Qaeda, are a local regional movement. I'll say regional because there's some Pakistani influence there for sure. But it makes an insurgency easier to, to undertake and much harder for us on the counterinsurgent side to do away with. I mean, I'm not even going to go down the rabbit hole of what do you do about a village that maybe leans 5149 in support of the Taliban. They're certainly not all enemies. We have to somehow transition them to supporting the new Afghan interim authority and the eventual Afghan government in, instead of the Taliban. But how do you look at an entire village or a clan or a province that maybe just leans a little bit heavier Taliban? Or maybe they just treat wounded fighters that come into their village. They're just trying to help one of their own countrymen. They just happen to be Taliban. Are they you know, in the category of, of enemy? It gets really messy really, really quickly. One thing we're going to continue to do throughout the insurgency is on top of building and supporting and providing infrastructure and helping to stand up and support local government will be a continued hunt to take out bad actors. And when I say bad actors, that can mean a wide array of things. That is senior Al Qaeda and Taliban leadership that at this point in uh, in mid-2002, many of them are in Pakistan. But it could even mean, you know, the one or two folks in the village that, may or, that maybe are a little more supportive of the Taliban than the rest, or maybe they serve as a recruiter or early warning system for Taliban up the valley. So with so many population, small little population hubs all across Afghanistan, part of the strategy is going to be to remove whoever the Taliban center of influence is for a certain area. Maybe that's a better way to say it. But this is hard. It's hard because, I mean, at baseline, nobody's wearing uniforms, right? So it's not as though there's a Taliban uniform we're looking for when we fly overhead or even drive by in a vehicle. You don't know what it is you're looking for. Again, with the Taliban being a local, relatively local movement, you work your way into some of these villages and there's no way to tell Who's Taliban and who is just an Afghan citizen trying to go about their day? I mean, the Taliban versus the Afghan people, they're going to speak the same language. They're going to wear the same clothes. And because it's this local movement, in many cases, they may have grown up in that village. They don't look out of place in the least. How are you going to find them? Al-Qaeda is a little bit different. Um, Al-Qaeda fighters at this point still will be wearing the same attire that you would see many of the Taliban wear to a large degree. They are going to look a little bit different. they you know, Al Qaeda being more of a pull from the Arab community will generally look a little different in terms of, of ethnicity than the Taliban, but there's a problem with that. Afghanistan has so many different ethnic groups that just seeing somebody with say a little different skin tone or different eye color doesn't mean a whole lot in a place like Afghanistan. There is one difference between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban that could be picked up on, but again, requires people on the ground very closely tied in with this type of scenario. It's the language they speak. Because Al-Qaeda is pulled from across the Arab world, they predominantly speak Arabic, whereas most of the Taliban are going to be speaking Pashto. And I remember hearing a story, not to go down a rabbit hole, but hearing a story from uh, someone who had fought in Afghanistan early in the war, saying that when they intercepted communications or even heard somebody speaking in Arabic, they knew it was on, kind of implying that hearing Arabic meant whoever was nearby or whoever was talking was Al-Qaeda, and they were a lot more likely to fight to the death. So the challenges of finding out who these bad actors are are real on the ground, but the way that you can start to crack that code is by putting boots on the ground, interacting with the local population, showing a presence, showing that you care that you're not just there to kill. I mean, classic counterinsurgency tactics. It's not something you can pick up from aircraft overhead or intelligence reports or quite frankly, even driving by in in military vehicles. You have to develop some level of trust on the ground to where, especially in the case of the Taliban, somebody in the village will stand up, help you out and point out that guy in the corner and say him. He... Works with the Taliban, belongs to the Taliban, whatever it might be. It, it's a lot of trust you're asking for these people that you've never met in a country you've never been to. But good news: this is right up the alley of the right up the alley for the mission set of the U.S. Army Special Forces. This is what they're designed for. They take time to learn and study languages like Pashto or Dari that would be spoken in many parts of Afghanistan. They learn and understand the culture, appreciate how it can be utilized in working to develop, you know, security plans for villages or communication plans between militia groups they might be working with. These special forces teams are designed to blend in as best possible, cooperate with the locals on the ground, understand the power brokers. I mean, again, it's a very, it's a very personal, very interactive type of mission set when you're getting into counterinsurgency. It requires really kind of a melding with the population, and this is something we'd see in the war—not just early two thousand one, two thousand two, but for you know a decade plus all across the country. It was a strategy that worked, but the problem is to get a little off track here. We don't have enough of them. There's not enough of these kind of elite, highly trained, autonomous special forces teams to really. Create the type of impact across the entire country. These valleys and villages and provinces can be so segmented that you can have an entire area turn, you know, say one hundred percent in support of the Afghan interim authority, and it might mean zero for the next valley over. You might have to put in that exact same effort or double it to even make an impact. Again, just a couple miles to your east or west. So we'll come back out of that rabbit hole real quick. We don't have the manpower to do this across the country, but. I kind of think that's a sticking point in this war that we might not really ever have been able to overcome. Now, another challenge here with counterinsurgency is kind of the mental toll it's going to take on soldiers. We're going to ask people on the ground like Sergeant First Class Spear to alternate seamlessly back and forth between building communities and working with locals and at the drop of a hat, turn kinetic and raid a building and kill al-Qaeda or Taliban leaders. It's just, it can be emotionally, mentally, physically exhausting. As an example, in late July, Speer and his men are on a patrol. And they come across two wounded Afghan children that are stuck in the middle of a minefield. Afghanistan is notoriously one of the most heavily mined areas in the world, still to today. And at this point, they were seeing a lot of mines left over. We still see them today, actually. But in, in 2001, 2002, there were a lot of mines left over from the Soviet war in the 80s. Not all from the Soviets, but there certainly were a lot from that time frame. The Soviets and well, the United States, a lot of countries around the world had technologies that could disperse mines across a wide area. So, think land mines could be used for vehicles, could be used for people. The vehicle mines are a little bit bigger because they're designed to either blow the track off a tank or destroy, say, a wheeled vehicle. Anti personnel mines are smaller, it takes a little less, quite a bit less to set them off, and they're designed to maim or kill um, when a person or soldier or a child steps on top of the mine, triggering it. These mines, you know, when you're talking about vehicular mines, it's the type of thing that you want to have camouflage. So the vehicle and the soldiers and military can't see it as they're coming up on it. A little more deliberate, usually in placement, but anti-personnel mines, what you would see at times in the war against the Soviets is the use of kind of spraying them across a wide area. And there are a couple parts to this. They would say there was a valley and the Soviets were trying to seal off the Southern end. And they didn't have enough troops to do it. It wasn't uncommon to cover the area with mines that would be fired from artillery rounds that would scatter instead of the round impacting as an explosion like you normally see. It would scatter mines across the battlefield or even bombs dropping out of airplanes at certain elevations. They would just kind of open and mines would scatter again and arm when they hit the ground. Like I was saying, many of these are kind of earth tones to blend in a little bit, but there were also some tactics that involved coloring the mines brightly. They would look a little bit more like toys, which prompted children across Afghanistan to pick them up, resulting in some pretty horrific stories throughout that war. I don't know what kind of mine these children triggered or stepped on in late July of 2002, but You can expect, especially in an area like Afghanistan where there's one mine, there's probably quite a few more. Spear, without hesitation, clears a path into the minefield so he can begin treating the children. He treats their wounds, applies tourniquets, and coordinates medical evacuation to a nearby American hospital, and both of the children live. So Spear risks his life to save the lives of kids that he's never met in a country far, far from home. But just as quickly as he was willing to jump out and save the lives of kids that he'd never seen, he's going to be asked to turn around and take lives during a kinetic engagement a few days later. On July 27, 2002... A tip goes out that a satellite phone has been used in and around Spears and his team's position. They head out to investigate a small team along with a couple interpreters. And they're wearing traditional Afghan attire. No helmets. That's going to be important here. They're dressed this way to blend in. They can, well, there's a couple of reasons. We were talking just a minute ago about how important it is to try to meld with the population and, and be able to speak the language or understand the culture. And, and there's a lot of benefit to looking, dressing the same way as the folks that you're trying to engage with. In this case, it also provides a little cover. They might be able to get a little closer to the target building without being identified, certainly more so than if they were driving in a military vehicle or Kitted up like any other US Army soldier. As they near the objective building, they decide to send their interpreters forward in what I'll call kind of loosely a tactical call out. And the idea with this form of, again, kind of loosely tactical call out is rather than storm in guns blazing, because you don't know what's on the other side of that door. You're going to set in a relatively defensive position, watching the compound, ideally covering all of the exit and escape routes. And then, in so many words, saying, come on out. We're here. You're surrounded. It's not a crazy strategy at this point in the war, especially. It was working quite often. People would recognize what they were up against. They didn't, they wouldn't know if it was, you know, two Americans or if there were 15 aircraft overhead waiting to rain down on top of them. So It wasn't uncommon for especially Taliban fighters at this point in the war to surrender without a fight. And great, you know, we'll call that a day if that's how it turns out. On July 27th, that's not how it turns out. The interpreters move forward and are gunned down. A handful of fighters inside this compound open fire and the interpreters are severely wounded, but still alive. And a gunfight take and, and the firefight kicks off. Spear and his team are already behind cover, and they begin engaging the compound, the men inside the compound. And before long, one of the Americans will run out into the fire to grab these two interpreters, again, severely wounded, to pull them back to safety. There were notes of this battle at this point that it was just nonstop stop Grenades. This must have been a, they must have had a box or so of of the grenades inside the compound and they were throwing one after the other, after the other at the Americans firing back outside. The fight would rage for about 45 minutes, would involve a couple Apache AH-64 helicopter gunships that came on station, unleashed everything they had, 30 millimeter guns, rockets, Hellfire missiles, but the fight continued. Before long, a pair of A-10 aircraft showed up and attacked the target with, again, 30 millimeter gun runs. Dropped the bomb a little too close to Spears' position, but um, didn't necessarily harm the Americans, but also didn't really put an end to the fight. Finally, two F-18s show up on station, dropping two 500-pound GPS-guided bombs on top of the target compound, silencing the the enemy fighters. Now, as we've talked about in a previous episode, there is a lot of emphasis placed on real time intelligence on the battlefield. So after a strike like this is conducted, it's pretty standard practice, if possible, to go in and investigate, see what, you know. Did the bomb do the trick for starters, but then be able to pull out any actionable intelligence or at this point, just any intelligence that you can gather. There might be cell phones. We know there's a satellite phone there, right? Because it was being used. That's what tipped them off in the first place. Maybe there's hard drives, maps, notebooks, pictures, whatever. Spear and his men get up to investigate and they move through a gap in the wall. And as they enter on guard, but believing all enemy fighters to be killed. They find out that one is not dead. This lone enemy is wounded, but able to throw a grenade. He, right as he does so, is engaged and shot multiple times by Spear's team, further incapacitating him, but he's still alive. The grenade detonates and wounds Spear in the head severely. Remember I said a moment ago, no helmets, trying to blend in with the population here. Spears team would quickly secure the compound and get to providing medical aid, not only to Sergeant First Class Spear, but also the attacker that threw the grenade. He was still alive. They would coordinate medevacs to get, again, both of them out of there, Speer would be sent to Bagram Airfield for additional treatment, still alive, and eventually moved to Germany a few days later. And unfortunately, on August 6th, 2002, at the age of 28, Sergeant First Class Christopher Speer would die of his wounds. In a weird twist in this type of warfare, the attacker survives. The man who killed Spear and was trying to kill the Afghan interpreters and the other folks and the other Americans involved in this initial attack or initial, I guess I should say search, was shot by American forces and could have just as easily been left to die on the battlefield. Enemy combatant. Nobody Nobody would have thought twice if they just left him out there to bleed out but they didn't. They treated him on the spot and he survived. I feel like at a high level, you know, in terms of humanity, that's a positive. Feels good, doesn't it? That even in a nasty situation like this, a situation where the person is moments before trying to kill you, that we can turn around and treat him and keep him alive. I like that at a high level, but I'd be lying if I said it doesn't feel a little bit weird. It just makes you confused about what this war is going to mean for the long term. This is, this is going to be tricky. To add to it, the attacker's name was Omar Khadr. I'm probably mispronouncing that, K-H-A-D-R. He was 15 years old and a Canadian citizen. He was detained, sent to Guantanamo, and eventually sentenced for, let's make sure I have this right, murder in violation of the laws of war. He was sentenced to eight additional years in prison on top of the eight he'd already spent in Guantanamo. And I believe eventually released. Um, He would have served his sentence at this point. There have been, this is a little outside my wheelhouse, but worth, worth bringing up. There have been a handful of lawsuits involved in this incident, which again, feels weird. We're talking about warfare, right? But it's It's this global war on terror is not going to be a clean fight. There are lawsuits back and forth between Spears' family and Cotter and the Canadian government and the U.S. government. And it's not my expertise. I'm not going to weigh too deep into how all of those played out. But I think it just highlights the global nature of this fight and how murky and complicated things can be in something that we're going to call the global war on terror that's truly going to involve combatants from around the world. This was an early incident that was just a challenge for multiple countries to figure out how do we work through this. And I think it's fair to say that as the global war on terror continues, we're probably going to have one or two more just like this play out in the future.